I often tell people, if I was locked on a desert island all by myself with all the lab equipment and everything I needed to do science, I'd be miserable. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. Our guest is 2012 Chemistry Laureate Robert J. Lefkowitz. I would not enjoy it for a minute. I'd want to find something else to do. Because for me, the whole process of science is sharing it with my trainees. It's the actual process of doing it, of sharing the experience, of planning the experiments, looking at the data, enthusing when they work, you know, tearing our hair out when they don't, all of that. So for me, it's a very social experience. The American professor of biochemistry, medicine, pathology and chemistry, Robert Lefkowitz, was awarded the 2012 Nobel Prize together with Brian Kabilka for their pioneering studies of G-protein coupled receptors. Their discoveries, made in pursuit of fundamental knowledge, have also been of profound practical importance, since the receptor classes they studied are the site of action of at least a third of the medicines on the market today. Nobel Prize Conversations is produced with the support of our Nobel International Partners, 3M, ABB, Ericsson and Scania. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. As you'll discover, Robert Lefkowitz is not only a scientist, he is also a storyteller. He related stories from his life and career to a former postdoc of his, Randy Hall, which led earlier this month to the publication of his new book, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm. We'll hear about the writing process later in the conversation, but now Lefkowitz tells us how it all started. What first turned me on to science was a specific individual. He was a, an internist and family physician in the Bronx, where I was growing up in the late 40s and 19, early in 1950s. He was our family physician, a man named Dr. Feibusch, and he would make house calls. And he could see I was very interested. Uh, he'd let me play with his stethoscope. Uh, he would let me see what was in his black bag. And then whatever he was doing, he would explain to me, explaining in very simple terms that, I'd say, a seven- or eight-year-old kid could understand what the science was behind whatever it was. And that was it. I mean, by the time I was eight years old, I was absolutely convinced that I needed to be Dr. Feibusch. I mean, that was, he was my role model. And I realized years later that what I experienced definitely falls under the heading of what we call a calling. Like people feel a calling, usually people think of it in, in the context of clergy. Sure, yeah. But you can feel a calling to anything. Uh, the only requisite is that you experience it as a, a sense that your destiny is to do a particular thing. And so I would say from age seven or eight on, I had absolutely no doubt that my destiny was to be a physician uh, and to learn a lot about science and biology and then apply that to making people feel better. That, that was, you know, what I thought. In a way, how fortunate. Obviously, it's innate in you. It comes from you. And so you're, you're to be credited with it. But on the other hand, it is very fortunate to find your direction so young in life. Absolutely. And as the father of five children and the grandfather of six, I can tell you I had a much easier time of it than many of them. 
because it was such a clarifying vision. I mean, I, I didn't have to think about what am I going to do? The path was completely laid out for me. Now, little did I suspect that my life would turn out very different in my career than I thought. I thought I would be practicing medicine in an office for my life. And that's not how the story actually turned out. But uh, that came later. I suppose we should jump to the marvelous story of your switch in a way from, or your gradual switch from being a practicing physician to being a researcher and the, and the Vietnam War and its involvement. So it's, it's such a good story. It's a very interesting story and one that is not known by many people. So I graduated medical school in 1966, did a year of internship and medical residency at Columbia and would have then happily finished my clinical training and gone into practice. Uh, but that was interrupted, and it was interrupted by a cataclysmic event, the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam War was raging in the late 60s. There was a lottery draft for all men in the United States over 18. A lottery meant that you got a number, they picked the numbers basically out of a barrel. If your number came up, you were drafted for two years and spent a year in Vietnam. Or if your number didn't come up, you weren't drafted. But for physicians, there was no lottery. Everybody was drafted. You got a one or a two-year deferment after medical school, then you were drafted. You went into one of the armed services for two years, and you spent one year in Vietnam. Well, the war was immensely unpopular. Many, including myself, had moral objections to it. Many of us thought it was illegal. Uh, but there were very few legal ways around being drafted into service and serving in Vietnam. Now, one of the very few legal ways to be drafted but not support directly the war in Vietnam was to gain a commission in the United States Public Health Service. Because the United States Public Health Service, one, was considered one of the military branches, so it, it counted against your draft, and two, many of the positions uh, that the commissioned corps uh, of public health service officers fulfilled was to serve at the National Institutes of Health the uh, CDC, the Communicable Disease Center, and other stateside research institutions. Well, as you can imagine, it was extraordinarily competitive to get into such a program. But fortunately, because I had high academic standing, good recommendations, et cetera, et cetera, I was successful. And so after finishing two years of house staff training, uh, clinical house staff training, in 1968, I went to the uh, NIH where I spent about 20% of my time doing clinical work, taking care of patients who were on research protocols, et cetera, and 80% of the time assigned to a laboratory. Now, the cadre of men, and of course we were all men because it was a draft thing, the cadre of people there uh, was extraordinary. Uh, they really were the best and the brightest, I mean, because it was such a competitive program to get into. And we came to be called initially derisively but then, uh, in a complete switch, in a very positive way, the Yellow Berets. Now, th this was a play on the term Green Beret. The Green Berets were our most elite uh, commando forces. Yellow was supposed to imply cowardice because we didn't go to Vietnam. But, of course, in most cases, it had nothing to do with cowardice. It had to do with a moral objection uh, to, to supporting the war. But anyway, we were called Yellow Berets. Well, this program... Uh, oh, throughout the Vietnam War, by attracting 
the very, very best talent coming out of medical school trained an entire generation of uh, physician scientists. Uh, and just to illustrate how remarkable the program was, consider this. In my class, or by class, I mean the group that served from 68 to 70, okay? And how many was that? Maybe 50 people, something like that. Out of that class, and we're all physicians, with us, most of us with no research training whatsoever before we get there. Of that group, four of us go on to win the Nobel Prize. Myself, Mike Brown, Joe Goldstein, and Harold Varmus. And oh, by the way, one of the guys in our class who didn't win the Nobel Prize, but was in our class nonetheless, Tony Fauci. So <laughs> this, this was an amazing group of people. In fact, between 1964 and 1972, eight years, sort of the peak years of the Vietnam War, a total of 10 of us go on to win the Nobel Prize. I would also point out, just in backing up for a minute, you mentioned the Bronx High School of Science having also put forth uh, quite a few Nobel laureates. In fact, the number is eight. I was the eighth Nobel laureate to graduate from the Bronx High School of Science. I don't know the exact number, but if the Bronx High School of Science were a country and not a high school, I think it would just make it into the top 20 of countries. Only it's one high school. So it, it is pretty amazing. But anyway, 10 of us, 10 Yellow Berets between 64 and 72 uh, went on to win the Nobel Prize. All that said, uh, my first year there was an dis unmitigated disaster. I had never been in a laboratory before other than required lab courses. I seemed to have no talent for it. Uh, nothing worked. I was depressed. And so I made arrangements to go on to complete my clinical training when I finished at the NIH. This was very difficult for me because I had never failed, much less in a prolonged way at anything I had ever tried in my life before. And here I was giving it my very, very best and I was making no headway. And it didn't put you off straight away? Sudden failure? Totally put me off, but I was stuck there. I remember traveling home after about six months, it was around Thanksgiving time, uh, to visit with my family. And I was very close to my father. I was an only child. And whenever I needed advice, I would always turn to him, even if he knew, you know, very little about, you know, the specifics of what I was talking about. He just had a lot of common sense. Anyway, I explained to him uh, how depressed I was, that nothing was working. And he was wonderful. He reassured me. That, uh, he said, look, you never wanted to go into research anyway. You always wanted to be a practicing doctor. So look, do your time, serve your two years, then you'll go finish your clinical training and uh, you'll be all set. You'll have the career you dreamed of, that I dreamed of for you, uh, etc. Seemed great. So uh, I went back to Bethesda, Maryland, where the NIH is, feeling much better about things. Alas, my dad dropped dead two weeks later at age 63, his fourth heart attack, which threw me even into more of a tailspin. Uh, because it turned out that fateful conversation that I had with him was the last time I ever spoke to him. So that first year at the NIH was dismal for me. Between the, the, my father's death, the fact that I was failing for the first time in my life, yeah, it was bad. But amazingly, when I got to about the 18-month mark, uh, things started to pick up. I began to experience what it was like to actually make progress with a, a research problem. And over the final six months, I published three papers, first three I ever published, and I got a taste 
of what it was like to actually succeed in doing research. So at that point, my mentors, who were two very prominent men, Jesse Roth and Ira Paston, basically importuned me to stay on. They said, you can't go off to finish your residency. The research is too hot. I still was not totally convinced. I said, no, I have to go fulfill my commitment. And so uh, I left the NIH after two years and moved to Boston to the Massachusetts General Hospital uh, to pursue full-time clinical work. There's a very interesting thing, though, because you mentioned the 10 laureates that came out of that, um, that, those Vietnam years at NIH. But you all left NIH after that period. None of you stayed. Exactly right. And I think it's a very good question. I never really thought about that. Every one of us stayed, even uh, left, rather, even Tony Fauci, who would return a few years later to spend his entire career there. Even he left. Uh, and he left for the same reason I did, in the sense that he wanted more clinical training. He, he became the chief medical resident at uh, Cornell, I think. Uh, so the question is, why did we all leave? It's a very good question. It could have to do with the fact that it could well be that they were all feeling the same ambivalence that I was, that, hey, I'm not willing to uh, put my token down and commit the rest of my life to this research stuff. I mean, in a sense, the, the clinical acumen was like a safety net. If you've got that, you know you've got something. Whereas, you know, you could always practice. With this research thing, either you're successful or you're not successful. Uh, you might flame out altogether. You really were driven to be doctors. You were driven to do medicine. Exactly. I think we were all driven, in a way that I don't see so much today, to really be physician scientists. And it's interesting, for me, I had my epiphany and, shall we say, experienced my second calling, the first one having been to the practice of medicine, about six months after I left the NIH, I was at the Mass General Hospital. Uh, I was a resident again. I was doing full-time, very intense clinical work, loving it. Uh, I always enjoyed clinical medicine, and I was good at it, to, to be quite honest. Uh, but I began to feel something was missing. And at first, I didn't know what it was. But I, I, even though I loved medicine, there was something just not right. And I finally realized that and this was the epiphany that I missed the laboratory. I missed the day-to-day -day excitement of doing experiments, getting data, answering questions in a way that I wasn't experiencing in the clinics. And the irony in that is that that was the turning point. So what really, I guess it's a classic example of, what do they say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. I mean, it was the absence of doing research, being away from it, that convinced me that I really needed to get back in the game. I wonder whether the initial absence of success that you had at NIH made the success all the more sweet and made you a better researcher, the importance of the failures. Absolutely true. Failure is an inevitable part of doing research. <clears throat> Most of what we do fails. In fact, I remember vividly a conversation I had when I was at the NIH, sort of in the depths of my despair. And I was having lunch one day, and I was talking with a senior scientist who worked down the hall, not, not my mentor. And he knew how down I was. And he said, Bob, let me tell you something. He said, do you have any idea what percentage of experiments that an average scientist does actually work or succeed? I said, no. Yeah, he said, it's probably about 1%. 
He says, but let me tell you something. Do you have any idea what percentage work for a real world beater, maybe a Nobel laureate? I said, no. He said, you know, it could be as high as 2%. And this really <laughs> made the point in a very vivid way to me that it didn't matter how good you are, 98% of what you did failed. And I learned important lessons there about how to deal with failure and how to be patient. And they have served me in very good stead, not just in my own scientific career, but in my mentoring. Because that is one of the hardest things for young scientists to come to grips with, understandably, is how do you deal with failure? And look, I mean, the more important the problem you're working on, riskier it's going to be. And the riskier it is, the more that you fail. And you have no guarantee of success. I actually give a, a talk to the research fellows at, at Duke every couple of years called How to Deal with Failure and Rejection in Science. And yeah, I, I talk to them about having to come to grips with this and the fact that even though you're failing, you're moving forward. But you, you have to learn to deal with that. It's crucial. And I can see it must be quite a jolt for them because I suppose research fellows at, at Duke um, are among the cream of the crop. They've probably had a life up till then which hasn't seen much failure. They've passed all their exams. I can relate to that because that was exactly the position I found myself in uh, at the NIH. I had always been top of my class. I went to this distinguished high school. I you know, was elected to the honor societies in college and medical school. I had really never met a challenge that I couldn't you know, defeat. And then here it was, and not just for a month or two months, but for a year, I was still nowhere. And uh, fortunately, my mentors were very supportive. And they never lost confidence in me. I think that's a very important part of, of being a mentor is to continuously make sure that your trainees, even when they're failing, that they understand that you're patient and that you have confidence in their ultimate success, etc. So I learned such valuable lessons from that failure. Just like you know, all, all these creative environments, um, IBM Labs or the um, MRC LMB in Cambridge, where people always want to capture and recreate the environment that led to all these successful um, discoveries, successful scientists. It must be very hard to, to work out what was so right about NIH at that time, but a great intake, great mentors. But was it also that they were giving you problems that were really very hard? And that's unusual. I think you just really hit it right on the money. Uh, as you say, amazingly uh, excellent intake, fellows coming in, superb mentors. But part of that superb mentorship, as I look back on it, and I look on what were each of us working on, each of us was put on a very challenging and important problem. And although most of us went on in our careers to work on other problems, in almost every case, you can look back on what we did at the NIH and see a spark of something which would ultimately resurface in the later research. Something I'm very interested in, a lot of people are, are lineages in science. There are lineages not just in science, but I think in every career and profession. I mentioned to you for the, uh, the 10 scientists from the NIH, the Yellow Berets that went on to win the Nobel Prize. Well, of those 10, four or five actually trained in the laboratory of a Nobel laureate. I was not one of those. Of the other half, four or five, 
you don't have to go back further than the scientific grandparent, that is one generation further back, to find a Nobel laureate, okay? And I, I actually published an article in which I took, it was then the nine of us, because the 10th just won the prize a year or two ago, uh, Harvey Alter. But I created a scientific tree for the nine at that point, Yellow Berets that had won the Nobel Prize, and looked back at uh, how often Nobel laureates appeared in those family trees. It's staggering. I went back about four or five generations and probably had, I don't know, 50 or 70 scientists in there. I'd say about 50% were Nobel laureates. There are some lineages where you have, out of seven generations, I think, there was only one generation where it wasn't a Nobel laureate. So what does that mean? Well, I think um, it means a number of things. But I think one of them is that there are things about the process of doing science that are transferable, okay? And they're not the things that most young people think they are, like a specific technique or how you clone a gene or how you purify a protein or anything like that. They have to do with much more subtle things, value judgments, style. How do you choose an important scientific problem? And when people ask me that, trainees or others, I often tell them, you know, one of my little aphorisms is that if something's really important, you can't write it down in a book. You can't read it in a book. So you can't read in a book. You can't tell somebody a set of rules that if they follow these, they will be choosing a tractable scientific problem. So they say, well, how can I learn how to do that? And I say, watch me. Work with me for a few years. Watch what I decide to work on, what I don't work on. When do I push on? When do I give up on something? Uh, when do I, you know, and on and on and on. And not just me, I mean anybody. And these questions get asked all the time. We do these roundtables with um, students, graduate students around the world, with laureates in every country. These questions come up. Yeah, how do I know when to stop a project? How do I know when to turn away from a project? How do I choose my next problem? Again and again. And you, as you say, you can't answer it. These are the most important questions. And I think the key, and I'm sure you find people all over the place trying to articulate things, but my take on it is you can't tell somebody how to do these things. You have to show them by modeling the behaviors. Okay, basically, learning how to be a scientist is an apprenticeship experience. Frankly, a lot of medicine is an apprenticeship experience. But you just have to live with somebody for a while. And, you know, postdocs are getting longer and longer now. But anyway, you live with somebody for three to five years uh, closely and watch exactly what you say. When do they push on? When do they pull back? When do they say that's just too difficult to do? I mean, I'll give you an example. In general, you can look at a scientific problem and they will range in your estimation from at one end, I mean, any fool could do that. Uh, and at the other end, virtually nobody could do that. Okay. In general, there's some correlation between how challenging a problem is and how important it is. Now, on that spectrum, as you move from not challenging and of trivial importance to existential importance and difficulty, you basically want to find the spot on the spectrum which is such that the problem is 
as important as it can be without exceeding your particular ability to solve it. Now, nobody can tell you where that (laughs) is, okay? And nobody gets it right all the time. But it's a judgment call. So that's what you're trying to teach the trainees. When we talk about problems to work on, you know, sometimes I'll say, I just don't think that the conceptual, or in some cases technical, underpinnings are there for us to take that on now. So I'm not going to go after that. Uh, Now, it could be somebody else feels that they can, and maybe they... But again, it also requires a certain level of self-understanding. You have to know, what are your capabilities? You know, if you overestimate them, (laughs) that's not going to be good. You'll be forever taking on things that you can't solve. If you underestimate them, you'll be working on trivial things. You'll succeed in publishing a lot of papers, but nobody will care because they're all trivial. So these are all judgment things, which in my estimation cannot be clearly described, but can only be role modeled or illustrated in your own behaviors. I mean, clearly listening to you, you enjoy the passing on of this kind of zeitgeist of research or whatever it is. And of course, you've trained so many people. You've had so many people come through the lab. Your lab, the Lefko lab, as they call it, has seeded so many. You must have a very good feeling for who is going to be able to benefit from this sort of training and who is not, or or is it a surprise? I don't know. Well, here's what I've found over the years, that, you know, picking postdocs is not all that easy because you don't have a lot of exposure to them. I mean, they come for a day's interview, you know, you have great letters of recommendation, etc. But I find that within a couple of months, long before there, anybody's having any success, some of them haven't even got their, their, uh, their real project lined up yet. Within two to three months, I know what I got. And it's just at the level of uh, intuition or uh, I don't know what it is, but you in, in working closely with somebody, you get to really know them and you find out what they've got. A perfect example is Brian Kobilka, who uh, shared the prize with me and who was a fellow in my lab for five years back in the 80s. He always took on the most challenging problems. And so he was not immediately productive, as much my fault uh, as anybody's, because I, I put him on some things that were really kind of dead end. But I knew within months that this guy was something special. He seemed to know things that he had no business knowing. If I sent him to learn about something, he'd come back a few days later and he knew more about it than I did. So you get that sense uh, very, very quickly. Now, there's no one right way to do science. Uh, th- that I can assure you. But I think, and for example, you couldn't have two more opposite personalities than me and Brian. Absolutely. (laughs) Limit case opposites. And yet we both have reputations for being excellent scientists. And perhaps more importantly, we both have reputations for being excellent mentors. And I can assure you, uh, he's got to mentor his people in a very different way than I am, because I mean, he's the ultimate introvert. I'm the ultimate extrovert. For me, the process of doing science is a very social one. I often tell people, if I was locked on a desert island all by myself with all the lab equipment and everything I needed to do science, I'd be miserable. I would not enjoy it for a minute. I'd want to find something else to do. Because for me, the whole process of science is sharing it with my trainees. 
It's the actual process of doing it, of sharing the experience, of planning the experiments, looking at the data, enthusing when they work, you know, tearing our hair out when they don't, uh, all of that. So for me, it's a very social experience. And perhaps that has something to do with, with why I've had so many successful trainees. I, I take such pride in that. And uh, I keep in touch with a huge percentage of them. I mean, you'd be amazed. Uh, I would say in a typical week, uh, I probably hear from five trainees about one thing or another. Uh, it's sort of like your kids. You're never rid of them. <laughs> they come back time and again, but at least they don't ask for money, which is good. But, you know, even things down to, hey, Bob, I'm, I'm getting ready to send out this paper. And here are five titles. Which one do you like? You know, things like that. I mean, they, they come back to you, even Brian, all the time. And that, that's just a load of fun. That's amazing that you, you build so many warm relationships, while at the same time, of course, it must be a very competitive environment within the lab. Lots of Everybody's trying to make their way and make their own path and get their name. Absolutely what you say. And one of the things I pride myself on is that with a very few rare exceptions, we almost never have had uh, any sort of internecine, if I can use that term, battles in the lab. Of course, it's happened on a couple of occasions over 50 years. But for the most part, the, the esprit de corps is great. And I'm, I'm very mindful of that. I think the important thing is that everybody understands that I, I value everybody's contribution. There's a, a funny story about that. So one of my many illustrious trainees is a guy named Rick Serione. He was with me in the 80s. He's now holds an endowed chair at Cornell uh, in, I don't know, biochemistry or molecular biology. He was very involved in our initial studies reconstituting uh, beta-adrenergic receptors in lipid vesicles and showing that they really could activate G-proteins. Anyway, I think it was my 60th birthday, uh, my goodness, 18 years ago, and Duke ran a two-day sort of feshrift in my honor. There were several different symposias and a number of Nobel laureates came to speak, and about 100 of my trainees came back. So that was, of course, a real highlight of my career, and having everybody back. And so uh, they were having a roast one night, and so everybody was telling stories that they remembered from the lab about me. And Serion told the story about one of the things that kept him pumped up so much when he was in the lab was that he knew that the project he was working on was as far as I, Bob, was concerned, the most important project in the lab because he could pick that up from my conversation with him and I had told him as much uh, on several occasions. But then one time he was talking with one of his lab mates uh, about this and the lab mate said, well, I'm sorry, Rick, but uh, Bob thinks my project is, is the most important in the lab. He said, huh. So then they talked to several other people in the lab. It turned out everybody in the lab was under the impression that I thought their project was the most important one in the lab. And of course, they were all right, every one of them, uh, because I, I thought all their projects were the most important one. But I had transmitted that enthusiasm to them. So, uh, and, and they took it to heart. So, yeah, I, I think uh, that kind of interpersonal interaction has always been, you know, at, at the core of what I do. I guess all your children are just as important as each other, so. Exactly right. It's, it's along those lines. And, and respecting everybody. And, of course, part of mentoring in, in the book, uh, I have a whole chapter on my approach to mentoring. 
Uh, and I think uh, uh, amongst my 10 golden rules of mentoring, I believe the first one I listed is that you got to mentor everybody differently. Each one is a case unto itself. You cannot mentor everybody in the same way. It depends. I mean, some people have are born with tremendous gifts. Uh, others are less, less blessed. Uh, I, I can't relate to, uh, say, a Brian Kobilka the same way I'm going to relate to a guy who's less gifted. Uh, in terms of project selection, uh, the way I'm going to talk to them, etc. It, it all has to be individualized. Mm. Absolutely. I'd like to close with the theme of patience. Um, it, now, the project to, to isolate and purify and picture the, um, the beta-adrenate receptor took a very long time. 15 years to even get to the point where we could do the cloning. So obviously you need a lot of patience if you've got that goal in mind and you have to just somehow keep going on the steps along the way. But then... Um, Tell me about how you have a goal in mind that is so far distant and you keep it in mind and you just keep going. So this is a very important question. And I think in, in my own case, I probably in most cases, the key is to break it down into baby steps so that it's sort of like I never actually ran a marathon in my life. But when I was younger, I used to do a lot of fairly long distance running uh, in uh, distances up to about half marathon. And one of the things I, I learned in doing that is you don't look towards the finish line. You know, when you're at the five mile mark, you're just interested in getting to the six or seven. Well, I found the same in my research career. You got to look down, look at the road right in front of you. And that's what I think I've tended to do is to sort of break things down uh, into smaller and smaller goals. You know, research Research careers play out in different ways, and there's no one right way to do it. But one of the things that I kind of like, because I did it the way I really wanted to, and it's characterized a number of the research careers that I admire, is you could take every experiment that's going on in my laboratory today, okay, and then go back, connect it to the dot of the previous experiment done maybe yesterday or the day before, that was the genesis for today's experiment. And then trace that one back and back and back. And in an unbroken chain, you would get to the experiments I was doing 50 years ago. But my God, look what we've moved through, okay? I basically look at my whole career as having built an edifice, or if I was writing a story, I guess it's a long novel. <laughs> but rather than jumping around to a many different things, I've been pursuing what I view as one story, which of course is a multitude of stories because there are multiple chapters. Uh, and you know, there are, amongst the careers that I uh, most admire, they've played out in that way. I give the example of Mike Brown and Joe Goldstein, two good friends who've been, for me personally, even though my, they're my peers, they have been role models whose work I have admired. They've done the same thing. I mean, you can go back from the work they're doing today, uh, back to when they started out as assistant professors in, in Dallas in the early 1970s, trying to figure out, was there an LDL receptor? Uh, same business. One step in front of the other, in front of the other. And of course, you have no way of knowing where you'll be in five years. There are so many surprises along the way. You don't even know the questions to ask 
until you've answered the previous ones, which then provide new questions that you didn't even know were questions. And that's why I think you can go on for 50 years putting one foot in front of the other and continuously, you know, kind of stay near the front of the field and, and, and be discovering new things. That's lovely. I was going to end by just asking about the patience required for somebody who was um, told by people that they might be getting the Nobel Prize uh, um, for many years before it came and how that affected your, well, I suppose it just affected, how did it affect you? Well, it's interesting. It, it did have an effect on me. So I had two near misses uh, with the Nobel Prize. One was in 1994 when Martin Rodbell and Al Gilman received the prize for the discovery of G-proteins. Now, by then, we had not only discovered the G-protein-coupled receptor family, we had isolated the proteins, cloned their genes, found the proteins that regulated them. So, you know, horse and carriage, love and marriage, receptors and G-proteins, I mean, they go together. So at that point, many people said to me, well, my goodness, they could have thrown you in there. Uh, it would have been a natural thing. And I can't say I disagreed with them. So that was it. And I, I was in the uncomfortable position. They were good friends of mine, both of them. And I was called upon by several journals to write essays at the time about why they won and what the work was. It was a little dicey. So I think, you know, as often happens, I felt bad about it. But, uh, you know, that passed. Then, 10 years later, in 2004, Linda Buck and Richard Axel, two more very close friends of mine, win the Nobel Prize for discovering olfactory receptors, which they did in 1991, five years after uh, we had cloned the beta receptor. And in fact, they were able to come up with that brilliant coup by designing, uh, coming up with a wonderful strategy for designing degenerate PCR primers to clone the smell receptors. But to do that, they used the sequences of, I forget, six or eight previously published sequences. Well, three quarters of them were from my lab. Okay, so our work directly enabled what they were doing. And still I wasn't included. That, that one really hurt. And in fact, I talked to Richard, who's a good friend, uh, a couple of years after that. And I remember him saying to me, I don't get it, Bob. He says, you were always in the cards to get that prize. He says, I was so shocked, you know, when, when we got it. So I went through a couple of uh, periods of saying, oh, that's too bad. I mean, any scientist, the idea of winning the Nobel Prize is just an amazing thing. But I eventually concluded that for whatever reason, it wasn't in the stars, okay? And I had completely let go of it. So when I got the call in 2012, uh, I was 69, and, you know, I, I was just, you know, and then when it came in chemistry rather than in medicine, I was like totally shocked. But it's interesting. I don't know, have you ever seen the movie called The Wife? Uh, yes, yes. So that movie opens with the guy who is winning the Nobel Prize in literature and his wife and he are jumping up and down on the bed. And, and I, I have known uh, a number of my colleagues who've won Nobel Prizes uh, and that's how they reacted. That was not how I reacted when I got the call. It was more of a certain sense of quiet satisfaction and the monkey's off my back and... I'll never again have to answer the question, Bob, 
When are you going to win the Nobel Prize? It was that sort of a reaction. Might you say that it was a good thing you didn't get it earlier because it would have interfered in the research career or...? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I have uh, made a point of noticing how winning the prize affects my various colleagues who had uh, uh, won it. And they fall into various groups. Uh, I always told myself that if I ever win the prize, I want to be like Mike and Joe. Yeah. It's like it never happened. They went on with their work. They didn't miss a beat, did they? No. Exactly the way to put it. Didn't miss a beat. And I always said, if I ever win this, I want to be like Mike and Joe. Uh, But, you know, it's like a lot of things in life. I look back on it and, you know, I'm glad it took that long. In the sense, I had, uh, you know, time to savor the fact that, well, maybe this is going to happen. Maybe it's not. Another nice thing is, of course, once you win the Nobel Prize, you never win anything else. I mean, that's sort of anticlimactic, and that shuts it down. But since I didn't win the Nobel Prize, I kept winning all these other prizes, which uh, was nice, etc. So, yeah, I don't have any regrets about that. And the fact that I shared it with one of my trainees, Brian, made it sweeter than ever. As we mentioned, Robert Lefkowitz has recently been in a different sort of collaboration with a former postdoc. February saw the release of Lefkowitz's memoirs, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm, The adrenaline fueled Adventures of an Accidental Scientist, written together with Randy Hall. The book is about his roots, his childhood in the Bronx, a life spent in medicine and science, mentorship, and his unexpected transition from cardiology to biochemistry, which in the end led to the Nobel Prize. I'm very excited about it, I can tell you that. I never thought I would write a memoir. I'm kind of a rock on tour, uh, as you already know. I love to tell stories. Stories and narrative are very important to me. Uh, and I'm always telling stories, often with a humorous uh, edge to them. And so over the years, my students, trainees, colleagues have always been after me, you know, along the lines of, well, Bob, you got to write these stories down. I never thought I would. Uh, but then a couple of years ago, uh, a, uh, a former trainee of mine, a man named uh, Randy Hall, a postdoc who had worked with me in the 90s, who is now a professor of pharmacology at Emory, uh, was up visiting here at Duke. He is an avid Duke basketball fan. So we were having dinner before a game, which we were going to together, and I was regaling him with stories, of course, which is what I do. Uh, And he said, you know, Bob, he says, you really got to write him up. I said, yeah, I know. Everybody's always telling me that. He said, well, look, I'll make a deal with you. How about you'll tell me your stories uh, over time. I'll record them. I'll write them up. You can edit them. And we'll put it together. He says, much along the lines of Richard Feynman's very famous book, Surely You're uh, Joking, uh, Mr. Feynman, which I had read and always liked. And so that became the model. And so then we started, we talked about an hour and a half to two hours every week for about a year. Uh, He recorded everything. Uh, I went chronologically trying to, uh, you know, bring forth stories that correlated with different parts of my life. Uh, And he did a great job. And we went chapter by chapter. Uh, We developed sort of a narrative structure into which we could fit all the stories. So it's not just disconnected stories. One of the things I was most nervous about was, could he capture my voice? Even though he was working from tapes, obviously, uh, he didn't just write down exactly what I said. 
And yes, I mean, he captured it beautifully. And those who know my voice best, my grown children, my wife, all of whom read the manuscript, said, yeah, Dad, he really captures your voice. I mean, it really sounds like you. I can attest to that. I think, I mean, I know your voice less well than them, but I do know it and I know your storytelling style. I can hear you coming through the through the word, through the pages. So it's obviously been a very productive collaboration. But did you not think of just doing this on your own beforehand, before Randy Hall walked into the lab and said, let's do this? I had thought about it, but I always talked myself out of it. And I honestly believe that had Randy not talked me into it, I don't think it ever would have happened because it's, it's a very labor-intensive thing. Uh, I'm still very active in the laboratory running my group, and I, I would always convince myself that it would take too much time away from the lab. But at this point, I am so very glad that I did it. And this was the time to do it. You know, I'm approaching 80 years of age, and, uh, you know, if I'm not going to do it now, I mean, when, when then? So I'm really glad that he talked me into it. So apart from posterity and the family and the people who need to know these stories, who's it for? That's a wonderful question. I think it's for several uh, audiences. It's certainly for a scientific audience, even though the science is in the background. Uh, you don't have to be a scientist or even be able to understand some of the little bit of science that's in the book uh, to grasp the, the messages. Uh, but certainly I wrote it for colleagues and people who are scientists. I think they will really appreciate uh, reading about a career, you know, such as mine. But then mainly what I had in mind was students uh, and trainees uh, who are heading for careers in medicine or science. One of the things that I've always been passionate about is that I've had a dual career. I'm both a physician and a scientist. Uh, and uh, I'm hoping that this book uh, can help inspire people, uh, students and trainees who are potentially interested in a career as a physician scientist. Another audience for the book, it strikes me, might be people who are not science trainees yet, but could be people who never even imagined they might be. That is correct, to inspire them to say, hey, this sounds like pretty exciting and interesting stuff. Uh, but the other audience, and as I say, we're obviously, uh, we're ambitious here. We're aiming for many different audiences. Another one is people uh, like my children, my grown children, who are not scientists or physicians, have never considered being a physician or a scientist and have no interest in being a physician scientist and maybe even no interest in science, uh, which is true of a number of my children. Uh, but they've all read the book now uh, and I've been delighted with their response. They all loved it. Uh, we tried to make the little bit of uh, science that's in there as comprehensible uh, as possible. Uh, but you couldn't have uh, a group of less scientifically oriented people than some of my kids. Uh, and two of them said to me uh, independently, well, Dad, you know, I can't say I really followed the science that was in there, but boy, did I follow the story. He, so uh, one of the things I wanted to present was just how competitive science can be, especially when there's a big discovery to be made. And uh, we have several chapters dealing with what was probably the most competitive phase of my career, where we were trying to figure out what, what receptors looked like, what was their molecular structure. 
And there were a number of excellent groups actively competing uh, for that. And one of my sons said to me, Dad, he says, I didn't understand the science. He says, but my heart was thumping so fast as I read that chapter. Uh, and I said, good, because that's the main point, the competition. Seems to me such an important point because so often when science is portrayed to the public, it's given as like a kind of lesson. You listen to some journalist tell you about a science story and it's just they're teaching you science on the radio and they might be making it simple, but it's boring, to be honest, the way they present it. Right. And you listen to a politics story and it's all about people disagreeing with each other, it's normal life, and you can be interested in that. Absolutely. And, and I wanted people to understand that aspect of it. The fact that, first of all, scientists are human beings. They're not just human beings, they're passionate human beings. And they're high emotions, etc. And especially when things are competitive, and things are always competitive in science if there's a big discovery to be made, whether it was the double helical structure of DNA, and I'm not comparing my work to that in terms of its importance, but, you know, that's a perfect example. Uh, or how about the, the race to figure out the triplet code uh, by which uh, DNA encodes uh, proteins? Uh, yeah, all of that. Tremendous uh, passions flowing, etc. And uh, I showed the book uh, to one of my closest friends, another Nobel laureate in science. I won't mention his name. I don't want to embarrass him. Uh, he read it. He loved the book. He said, but, you know, there are a couple of chapters in there. He says, I, I wouldn't have been so frank. I said, about what? He said, but, well, just how competitive you were. I said, well, I mean, but that was the whole point. I said, I wanted people to understand me. I am competitive. I wanted that to come through because that's part of the scientific process. What a wonderful storytelling time it's been. You are a great raconteur for sure. Um, Thank you very much. You, you have a wonderful way of conducting interviews where you're able to elicit. I've listened to many of your interviews over the years. You're able to elicit the story. So, and that's, by the way... Uh, a, uh, a very important characteristic of a physician is being able to elicit a history. Uh, histories don't just fall in front of you. I mean, you can elicit, one physician can elicit a key part of a history that another one completely misses. So uh, storytelling uh, and, and taking histories is a very important part of medicine. Oh, well, my great loss that I didn't meet Dr. Feibusch when I was eight years old then, I would... <laughs> Absolutely. He was a terrific guy. You've just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Filt for Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Sally Henriksen. And I'm Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. This episode is from season two of the show. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms. 